realized about two years ago, uh, Pastor John has asked me to come and share the Word of God with you all. So um, I am grateful for the opportunity, and at the same time, I do uh, appreciate the ministry that uh, Pastor John is doing here uh, for your church. And um, him and I, time to time, meet up for lunch and share uh, his ministry, love for you and your, 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 your congregation uh, members and families. So I am so thankful for the opportunity that God has given me to come. Um, let me pray one more time before I start. So let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, um, I thank you for uh, this opportunity that you give to us to come and to turn our eyes and to turn our hearts and our minds to you. Lord, I pray that you will uh, be with your servant at this, moment, uh, at this point, Lord, that you will hide me under your cross, that I'll be, I will become less and you will become great through this message that I'm sharing. And that I pray for those that who are here in person and for those that who are online watching, that you will bless us and give us an understanding and ears to hear through this passage. So, Lord, I thank you for this time and the hour, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I start this morning, um, I want to ask you guys a quick question. Um, the question is this. What is your favorite psalm? Everybody who has been a Christian for a while has their favorite psalm, right? It could be Psalm 19, where it talks about May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. Or it could be Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or it could be Psalm 119, where it talks about your word is a lamp to my feet. Or it could be Psalm 139, which talks about all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere God. Well, we all have our favorite psalm. But one of the th uh, things that I want to share with you this morning is that for the New Testament writers, for the New Testament writers, there are so many psalms to choose from of those psalms that I have mentioned. And maybe some of you have different favorite psalm passages. But for New Testament writers, their favorite psalm seem to be Psalm 110, the psalm that we just read this morning. And the reason is because they're talking about, they're thinking about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we call this, another way of calling it is, we call it a, as a messianic psalm, which talks about coming forth of our Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the things that I love is this, that, you know, there are, you know, I, I've been doing ministry for about 20 years now, and I've been in ministry dealing with, you know, uh, high schoolers, middle schoolers, and children, and especially with some, sometimes with college students. And we talk about a lot of things. And when we talk about passages and scriptures, we talk about the fact that, hey, what is your favorite passage? And a lot of people say, oh, I love those passages found in the New Testament, right? I love what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do and what his disciples are teaching, and a lot of times, people don't realize the, the, the important value of Old Testament, the history, the rich history that Old Testament brings. And a lot of times, if we don't have Old Testament, we don't have New Testament, right? So in a way, we really need to understand what 
the Old Testament is bringing forth and the teaching that it's bringing forth. And according to the Old Testament, we see clearly in a way that Jesus Christ is being moved. We call it Jesus being foreshadowed in Old Testament and all the things that Jesus will accomplish and do in the New Testament. And for that reason, we see many different ways throughout New Testament, writers of New Testament has quoted this very psalm 27 times, right? This very psalm 110, they quoted uh, 27 times. What's the reason behind it? Well, like I said before, it is pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. As I was looking and studying through this passage, one of the commentary that I came across was a guy that was written by uh, Matthew Henry. And in his commentary of Psalm 110, he quotes this. Um, he quotes that um, Psalm 110 is a pure gospel. It is only and wholly concerning Christ, the Messiah promised to the fathers and expected by them. Let me repeat that again. Psalm 110, Psalm 110 is a pure gospel concerning Christ, the Messiah. Notice the beginning of the Psalm 110. It says, it's a psalm of David. He himself was writing this. He is prophesizing. He is coming to teach the idea, the idea of Jesus coming and fulfilling. And, and what this psalm is doing, is doing, doing uh, 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 what we call it, uh, Jesus fulfills the idea of what the psalm is saying in two big, I guess, offices that we, we talk about as the king and as the priest. So as we think about this, I'm going to give you guys three simple points. So first point is this, that Jesus is your mediator. And second point is that Jesus is your eternal king. And third and last point that I'm going to draw your attention is that Jesus is the only priest you'll need. So as we think about this first point, about Jesus being the mediator, what is a mediator, someone will ask. Well, mediator is a person who attempts to make a people involved in a conflict come to an agreement is a person that who goes between to resolve conflict. In our case today, what Jesus is doing is that Jesus is mediating between God and us, between you and God. According to Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 42, the question asks, what is, why is our mediator called Christ? And the answer says this, our mediator was called Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure and so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the office of prophet, priest, and king of his church. And established and in state both in his humiliation and exaltation. So one thing that we see from this very question, larger catechism, it is saying that God has given Jesus all authority and ability to execute the office as a prophet, priest, and king. And what we're seeing today in our text today shows two of those offices. 
And with this in mind, what Psalm 110 reminds us, especially in verse 4, are two things, that he is king and he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And for those of you who might not know who Melchizedek is, if you look at Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, it refers to him as Melchizedek, king of Salem. And he and is further described, he was a priest of a most high God. Then who is Melchizedek? His name basically means that he is a king of righteousness. King of righteousness. He was a king of Salem, a city known as a city of peace. City of peace. And later, that city of peace is renamed to become Jerusalem. Therefore, what we can conclude about who Melchizedek is that he is a king of peace and he is king of righteousness. And as verse 4 of our text states, David is pointing to Jesus to have all authority and all the ability to be both king and priest. Just to give you a brief overview of Old Testament and what they say, is that that God does not allow one individual to fulfill two of those office offices, or even three, because we talked about in the larger catechism, there are three offices, prophet, priest, and king. But here in our text, we're talking about priest and king. So in the, in the Old Testament, there's no one that was able to fulfill two offices except for Melchizedek. And if you look in other passages... There are people that who try to be like, like King uh, Melchizedek or Melchizedek. And one of the examples that we see comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And many of you might know who King Uzziah is. Do you guys know who King Uzziah is? King Uzziah is one of a righteous king, God-fearing king, that who love God and who serve God, right? But that king, what happens? He becomes proud. He becomes proud. And that ultimately led him to a destruction as a king. Because there was an incident when King Uzziah entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. A job that only a priest was allowed to perform. According to 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 17, it says, Azariah the high priest, with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord, followed him into the temple to confront him about this. For what he was about to perform was only allowed by the priest to do. And what, what did Uzziah react? How did Uzziah react? He reacted by stating that he, there was an anger that came upon him because the priest came to him. So while he was in this rage at the priest in the presence of the incense of the altar of the temple, what happens? Leprosy broke out on King Uzziah because he was improperly joining the two offices that was not meant to be joined together because he was called to be a king, not a priest. And another example can be seen through King Saul the first king of Israel. 
And according to 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 18, uh, verse 8 through 14, like Uzziah, King Saul, the first king of Israel, offered a sacrifice that was only allowed by the priest to do. You guys remember that story? Right? Because he was waiting for the priest to come, but he wasn't patient enough because he wanted to go into the, uh, the battle, right? He wasn't patient, so what does he do? He himself gives an offering that only a priest were allowed to give. And what happens? He loses his kingship. His kingship is departed from him for the reason that he improperly joined the two offices together. Then you might be thinking, then why are we talking about this? Why is it that, that, that Jesus, and how can Jesus fulfill these two offices together? Well, that's why we're reading Psalm 110 together because it declares that Jesus is not only a king, but he's also a priest. Jesus is a priest that who sits at the right hand of God as we have read it this morning. And he also rules as a king and serves in his sanctuary. And this reflects how important who Jesus is. Then this leads me to my second point, that Jesus is your eternal king. How do you know that Jesus is your eternal king? Well, we'll let's look at Westminster Larger Catechism again. I like Larger Catechism because it gives us a lot of information about who God is and who Jesus is and what we ought to believe. So according to Larger Catechism, question 45 asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer states this, Christ executes the office of a king in calling out the word, world of a people to himself and giving them officers, laws, censures by which he visibly governs them in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sin, preserving and supporting them under the, all their temptations and suffering, restraining and overcoming all their enemies and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and for their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who not know God and obey not the gospel. As Jesus, as eternal king, is doing this for us, on behalf of us. How is Jesus your eternal king? Psalmist states in verse 1, he has supreme dominion over power, as we see in verses 1 and 2. And his kingdom expands and grows in verse three, uh, verse 1 and 2. Uh, and his kingdom expands and grows in verse 3, I'm sorry. And, 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 and furthermore, it brings all to justice, according to verses 5 and 7. Then as we look at our, our text today, our verse 1 says this, Jesus, referring to Jesus, sits at, my, uh, sits at my right hand until I make your enemy your footstool. So what is, what is being seen here is this, that Jesus alone has authority and honor and power to be sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And this is exactly what Apostle Peter is stating in verse 1 of the climax of his sermon that was given at the day of Pentecost. 
that was referring to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how it is important for Jesus to have a victorious life over so that he could be seated at the right hand of God the Father. As Jesus obeyed his Father, his Father places his Son, Jesus, to sit at his right hand. And this is what we see in other passages. Do you guys remember how I started? There are 27 times that the New Testament writers have quoted this very psalm. And that's what we see in, in Hebrews chapter 1 or Matthew chapter 22 verses 44 and 45 or 1 Corinthians chapter 15 or Ephesians 1.22 explains Jesus' authority to be a person that who is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And it doesn't stop there. In the second half of verse 1 says this. He says, until I make your enemy your footstool. That's what we see in verse 1 again. As Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, his enemies will utterly be destroyed. That he has a power, he has authority to do that. And some of you might be asking, then if he has that kind of power, why isn't he doing it right now? Well, the time is not yet for that time to come. And it continues on in verse 2, and where it says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. And as your eternal king, he rules, he governs, and he is right, sitting at the right hand of God, judging for the people and ruling over the people with this mighty scepter. And what is this mighty scepter? Well, it, it gives a physical sign of the authority that Jesus Christ has as a king. Again, studying through the Old Testament, which brings a lot of information, if you study the book of Esther, you see the example of this mighty scepter being used. Do you guys remember the story of Queen Esther? You know, she is an Israelite during the Babylonian captivity. And what happens? God brings up, raises up Esther to save the Israelites. How does he do it? Well, he does it by raising Esther to be a queen. And there was an evil scheme that the leaders of Babylon was trying to destroy the Israelites. So what happens? His uncle, Esther's uncle, finds out about the evil plan and says to Esther, Esther, go, go to the king and plea on behalf of our people. And what does Esther say? I can't go to the king unless the king summons me. If I just go to his court, then you know what? I'm just going to die because he hasn't summoned, summoned me. But only way that she or her life could be spared is that the king's scepter will be upon her, then that her life will be saved. Mighty scepter displays the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And it does not stop there. As the Jesus as our eternal king, Jesus' kingdom grows and expands. And this is exactly pointing to what happens in Acts chapter 2. You guys know what happens in Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2? Pentecost. 
when the Holy Spirit is given and how the church has expands and grows, right? Many, many people came to know who Christ is and given their life. This kingdom is not only for God-fearing Jews anymore, but start of the Gentile mission. Mission for the Gentiles. Mission for the foreigners. And do you guys remember what happened when Jesus finally dies, take his last breath? What happens? The curtain in the temple, what happens? Gets torn. There is no more barriers between God and us. His kingdom is meant to expand and to grow. And that's what we're doing. The reign of Jesus is clearly evidence in verse 3. Let me read verse 3 for you. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in his holy garment from the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth will be yours. How kingdom is expanding, how kingdom is growing. Are you glad that God's kingdom is growing? Are you happy that you're, you're overjoyful for the fact that you have you are, you, are, you are partnering up with all the world mission. And, and you know, one of my friends, who also belongs to the same presbytery as I do, who used to be your assistant pastor, James Lee, he's going out to mission field, right? In a in few, few weeks or a few months, as he has he's gotten, I think his visa is approved now. We see of the ways that God's kingdom is growing and expounding. And lastly, as I said, King Jesus will bring all to justice as we see in verse 5 through 7 where he says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter uh, sheep over the wide earth. And that's what we see. God, Jesus, as a king, will bring judgment. He will not let go of the sins of this world. He will come and do justice for those that who are against him. And this is the fulfillment of what David is saying through what Jesus is doing. Don't we believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the sins of this world, the, 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 the battle between us and Satan has been dead. Yes, we believe that. But we also look for the final judgment. We also look for the final thing that Jesus, when he returns for the second time, he will be victorious over sin and death and Satan. And this is one of the reasons why it's important for us to focus ourselves into the study of Psalm 110 and what it's bringing forth to us. Because Jesus is your eternal king. And this leads me to my third and last point. That Jesus is the only priest you'll need. Jesus is the only priest you'll need. You know, one of the things that I, as I was preparing this message, one, 
one um, phrase that came so dearly to my heart is verse 4, where it says, The Lord has sworn, and he will, change, he will not change his mind. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is God that who does not change? He's not going to say, here, I'm going to give you this, and say, oh, no, I'm going to take it back. Right? You know, I have three kids. I have my oldest, Enoch. My oldest son is Enoch. He's 10. My daughter, Chloe, is 7. And my um, youngest son, Escher, is 5. You know, when I see them play with each other, they play well. But there, there are times that, you know, my middle child, who is a girl, she's the only girl, so she gets very special treatment sometimes. So she knows that, so she tries to get away things. So she will tell his, her younger brother, Escher, saying, hey, I'm going to give you this, right? And then she changes, uh, she, uh, she changes her mind. She said, nope, I'm going to take it back. And the look of my son Escher's face is priceless. You know what, the, when you know what he does? He breaks out in, in tears. And he's like, ah, oh ah, Papa, look what Chloe did or look what Nuna did, right? She, she, she gave me something that I could have, but she took it back. Our God is not like our siblings who could give to you and, and, and take it back when they want it. And that's why it's important for us to see here what Jesus is doing as the only priest that you will need is that he died for you once and for all. And when he died for you, he's not saying that, oh, I'm going to take your salvation away. He's saying that you're going to have it for the rest of your life, whether you're good or whether you're bad, but he will be faithful to that. Does that make sense? And this is the kind of God that we serve. And this is the kind of Jesus that the work that he has done. So what is Jesus actually doing as a priest? Again, we're going to go back to Westminster Larger Catechism and ask the question, who is Jesus as a priest? The answer says, is Jesus execute the office of a priest in his once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God, to be reconciliation for the sins of his people and in making continual intercession for them. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what Jesus is doing. I think I gave a, a little chart for you guys to see today, and the chart talks about the difference and the contrast between Jesus as, a, as the high priest and Levitical high priest. And this is seen from the scripture of Hebrews chapter 7 and Hebrews chapter 9. So when you look at the left-hand side, it talks about Levitical high priest. On the right side, Jesus as the high priest. Well, in Levitical high priest, there are many in number, right? There are many, 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 many uh, high priests. But Jesus as the high priest, he's the only one. Levitical high priests, they are temporary. They're temporary. But as Jesus as your high priest, he is permanent. He is eternal. In Levitical high priests, there are sinners who had to offer sacrifices for their own sin. Right Before priests were able to offer sacrifice on behalf of the Israelites, they have to offer their own sacrifice first. Because they themselves are, are not clean. But Jesus as a high priest, he is holy, he is innocent, offers sacrifice only for others. 
Again, Levitical high priest had to sacrifice daily. Daily. If someone sins, they have to go to high priest daily and, and, and seek for their, their, their sins to be reconciled with God and, and offer sacrifice daily. But Jesus as our high priest sacrificed once and for all. Again, Levitical high priest offers sacrificial animals, doves, goats, lambs, calves, right? But Jesus as high priest, he offered himself freely. And lastly, Levitical high priest enters the holy place through man-made tent and by means of blood of goat and calves. But Jesus as high priest enters the holy place of the presence of God by the means of his own blood. You see the difference between the Levitical high priest and Jesus as your high priest? Do you want to go back to the Levitical time and do all these things? No. We want to have faith. We want to believe Jesus as the high priest to do this. And as we look at Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 7 and chapter 8, it points to us for the fact that Jesus is a priest forever. Jesus is a priest forever. Perhaps what David is trying to say and what David is trying to point at here is that Jesus is a priest will never abuse his power. You know, over the time period, have you seen so many even priests in Catholic church and pastors even in evangelical churches that who abuses their office and their power to do things, to get something or to get some places, right? But what we see here as Jesus as a forever priesthood, he will never abuse his power. And this priesthood is both older and more perfect than the priest that comes from the Levi family. And that's why we, it's important for us to study the corresponding passages from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, which describes the certainty of God's promise of salvation through the priestly work of Jesus Christ. And that's why verse 4 of our text today, where it says, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. Aren't you glad? Aren't you happy that God will not change his mind on giving you his son Jesus Christ to die for you so that you will be safe? I'm so happy for that very promise that we have. He is a priest forever. His blood, his death, and his resurrection is the greatest. And this priesthood is forever, as we have seen, of what we see here in our text of, 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 of verse 4, second half of verse 4, where it says, you are a priest forever after order of Melchizedek. So there are similarities of what, what we see here. And for that reason, we could say that Jesus is the king because he is also the priest. 
right? Jesus as a priest forever gives him the right to be called as a king. As we have studied earlier in verse 1 and verse 2 of the fact that he himself sits at at the right hand of God the Father, he he has his enemy under his footstool, and he has a scepter that he will rule as the forever king. Now, what we see here is that Jesus is doing the same thing. Bible is clear that Jesus descends from heaven to earth. He knew no sin. He also was obedient to God. The father humiliated his son, and the son was crucified on behalf of us. So Jesus, as the perfect priest, freely offers his life for you in relationship with you so that you will be right with God, so that you will be able to commit to Jesus Christ as your king. It is because of what Jesus Christ has done for once and for all, for the sake of God's plan, that made Jesus the king of this universe. And for for this reason, we could call Jesus to rightly join those two offices together as king and as a priest. And this reminds me of the act we call it uh, active obedience of Christ, right? We call it active obedience in Christ. And that is clearly seen in the teachings of Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where he says, and being found in human form, he what? Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It is because of what Jesus had done once or for all for your sake and for my sake. He becomes king and priest on behalf of us. And lastly, what we see here is that Jesus is a greater, greater king and greater priest than Melchizedek. Why is Melchizedek being named here so many times, here in this passage as well as in the book of Hebrew, especially when you look at Hebrews chapter 3, suggests that Melchizedek represents a a continuing and eternal priesthood because Genesis mentions no mother or no, uh, no father or no mother figure, no genealogy of him, as if, if, as, if, as if he was without beginning or without end. So it is in this example of Melchizedek that foreshadows, that foreshadows Jesus in the New Testament, that Jesus indeed is the Messiah who is to come, to rescue sinners from the misery of sin into a greater life, into a greater new life that is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad? Aren't you happy? Aren't you overjoyful for the fact that you have a God that who love you so dearly, who have established his kingdom through his son Jesus Christ, that who will be ever eternal king, that who will intercede for you 
not just once, but continuously. Aren't you glad? Aren't you happy that you have a God who loves you through his son, Jesus Christ? And that's what is being represented here in Psalm 110. Jesus, as God's son, he is the perfect king. A king that, you know, that was compared to David, even better than better king than David, because what happens to David? He fails. He sinned against God. But Jesus doesn't. Priest failed. But Jesus will not fail you. And for this reason, as I come to a conclusion, I'm kind of wondering, I kind of wonder what kind of response should you or should I give to this kind of God that who loves you so dearly? And going back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and following, because of what Jesus Christ has done as he was put to death, verse 9 and following says this, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you respond to God in this way? Would you exalt? Would you give yourself by kneeling down to Jesus, by giving yourself to Jesus, that who has offered himself so freely for you? Don't we all go through battle within ourselves every day? Right? Don't you battle your, yourself every day? I do. I battle myself every day about how I should live my life, how I should rely more upon Christ rather than myself. And as we deal with these kind of battles within ourselves, there's one hymn that comes to my mind. And I hope that this hymn will be a forever uh, a, a life hymn for you as you give yourself to God. And the, and the hymn is All to Jesus I Surrender. You guys know this song, uh, this hymn very well, right? It says, All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love him and trust him. In his presence daily I live. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pressures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus, take me now. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior, holy thine. Let me feel the Holy Spirit. Truly know thou art mine. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessing fall on me. And last stanza goes, All to Jesus I surrender. Now I feel the sac sacred flame. Oh, the joy of full salvation. Glory, glory to his name. Will you be able to surrender yourself to a God that who loved you so much 
by sending his son Jesus Christ to be the eternal king for you, to be your eternal priest that you'll ever need. And only respond that we could give to God is I surrender myself to you now and for the, forever. You alone will be mine. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the way that you have shown your love to us. Lord, when we look at 